This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning and welcome to the late April Eye on the Market podcast. Uh, before getting into this this week's discussion on the dollar, two quick things. Uh, U.S. economic data is really strong right now in Q1, Q2, but all the long-dated leading indicators we look at that look out 6, 9, 12 months suggest that there is a material slowdown coming ahead. I don't think it's anything catastrophic. We still think the low, the stock market lows of last year hold. I don't think if there's a recession, it's anything more than a mild one. But uh, a lot of indicators we're looking at are all pointing in the same direction. So we have a table on those. You can take a look. And then there's a quick comment on the fact that after 16 years of misleading levelized cost of energy statistics that Lazard has been publishing, they now have finally realized what me and other people have been writing about for years, which is that levelized cost of energy is flawed since it doesn't include the cost of backup thermal power or energy storage. They are now incorporating some of those costs. Uh, and of course, their revised wind and solar cost estimates are much higher than natural gas for that reason. Anyway, brief comment on that. So <clears throat> the main topic for this week is an article that caught my eye out of the South China Morning Post called, um, let's see, End of Dollar Dominance Will Also Spell the Demise of U.S. Hegemony. Uh, wow. Uh, the places we could go on that one, right? I mean, I could write a piece that looks at the press freedom that the South China Morning Post enjoys or does not enjoy and compare press freedom measures by country. Uh, I could look at the issues related to the ownership of that particular publication. We could look at Chinese currency intervention after it joined the WTO and its impact on U.S. manufacturing wages. We could look at mercantilism. We could look at issues around rule of law, judicial independence, property rights, capital controls. Now is, prob now is probably a bad time to do all that. And since I've written on some of those topics before, uh, this this eye uh, on the market only addresses the issue of the dollar as the world's reserve currency since a lot of clients ask about it. I think it's important to look at the big picture and to look at the numbers so that, you're, so that we're not overly influenced by individual anecdotes about countries adopting uh, the renminbi or, or some other currency for trading and settlement purposes. So de-dollarization, here's the bottom line. De-dollarization is a very hot topic, but there's a lot more smoke than fire so far. As a reminder, being the world's reserve currency is a really big deal. And the easiest way to think about that is that the U.S. share of trade in the world is just around 10 or 12 percent. Uh, the U.S. is only around 20 or 25 percent of global GDP, yet the dollar has a much higher share of foreign exchange, trade, uh, debt issuance, and foreign exchange reserve investment by foreign central banks. So that's why it's important to be the world's reserve currency. Uh, around 35% of all treasury bonds are owned by foreign official and private sector investors. And if that figure ever dropped to 20%, which is the average foreign ownership share of European countries, there would be an extra $3.5 trillion in treasury supply that somebody would have to buy. And obviously that could be very painful for U.S. treasury yields. Uh, 
So when and if the dollar loses or were to lose its reserve currency status is a big deal. Um, so this, uh, we have a piece this week that walks through the issues. I'm just going to summarize them here because there's a lot of information here, mostly with charts and things that make it pretty clear. Uh, there's no evidence that the dollar's role in foreign exchange is changing over the last 20 years, and the dollar accounted last year for 89% of all foreign exchange transactions. In other words, the dollar was on one side or the other in 89% of all foreign exchange transactions and also dominates the currency forward and swap markets. Um, the renminbi has grown a little bit, but is still very, very, very small. And then we get into the issue of foreign exchange reserves. So the dollar is still the primary choice for investment to foreign exchange reserves at about 60%. Uh, that share has declined by a few percent over the last few years. But uh, as Barry Eichen Green, who's one of my favorite experts on, on these topics at Berkeley, uh, describes, most of that 6% shift is explained by increased allocations into smaller economies like Australia, Canada, uh, Sweden, and, uh, and the Korean one. And so only a small bit of the recent ship shift is explained by increased allocations to the renminbi, most of which is driven by Russia. Um, and if anything, given the massive size of China's bond markets, the third largest in the world and bigger than Germany, France, and Spain combined, and the fact that the IMF added China to its uh, special drawing rights basket a few years ago, the real question to ask is why is their renminbi so small still? rather than, you know, the fact that it, it's being held in foreign exchange reserves at all, right? The right question is, why is it still so small? Um, <clears throat> there was an article in the FT recently that talked about the 8% decline in dollar reserves in absolute terms over the last couple of years, and the author cited this as evidence of the dollar's weakening status. This was pretty flawed and sloppy economics because the absolute decline in dollar reserves is almost entirely a, flexion, a reflection of rising bond yields uh, and falling bond prices. So you can pretty much ignore that. We explain that. Um, we have a section in here on what happened during COVID. There was a brief period of central bank selling of treasuries, but they have since rebounded. Um, uh, there's, we have a section in here on uh, when the dollar overtook the British pound. Yes, the Chinese economy is now larger than the size of the U.S. economy, but when the U.S. overtook the British pound, the size of the U.S. was somewhere between three and a half and five times the size of the U.K. So the mere fact that China's economy is the same size as the U.S. doesn't really tell you that much. Uh, reserve currency status depends upon a lot of things uh, more than size. One of the major arguments that gets made sometimes is the impact of, rest of Western sanctions on, on Russia is going to really change the desire to hold dollar reserves. Um, uh, I, I think this is a bit premature and the risk to the dollar from san these sanctions may be exaggerated. When you look at the... Uh, historically, there's a link between a country's geopolitical ties and how they invest their FX reserves for all the obvious reasons. And today, about 50 to 60% of U.S. government and you know, treasuries and agencies are held by foreign governments that have strong ties with the U.S. 
And then that figure rises to 75% when you include countries that have military cooperation with the U.S. So a lot of the dollar holders, other than China and Hong Kong, have either explicit or implicit military cooperation agreements with the U.S. And I think in, despite all the whining sometimes that you hear, I, I think the, uh, the dollar departures are going to be a lot slower than sometimes advertised. And even as it relates to Hong Kong's peg, uh, as it relates to Hong Kong, the currency peg requires that they have at least 80% of their liquid assets in dollars, and currently that figures around 90%. And then similarly, Saudi Arabia and the UAE also peg their currencies to the dollar. So it's really, when we're talking about the risks to dollar holdings, it's, it's, it's primarily an issue uh, on China. Um, Chinese bankers told Chinese officials in April of last year that diversifying into yen and euros was not very practical, given the massive size of China's reserves. And while China dollar holdings have been declining, uh, the share of dollars in China's reserves has been roughly unchanged at 60% uh, for at least the last 10 to 15 years. So I think sometimes the sanctions issue may be over-exaggerated as a risk to the dollar. Um, there's, instead of investing in other fiat currencies, certainly other central banks could sell dollars to buy gold. And that has been happening over the last few years. Um, gold holdings fell a lot from the early 90s to, let's say, 2007 because gold prices weren't doing anything. And then once gold prices go started going up, central banks started adding gold again. But outside of Russia and Turkey, uh, the gold shares tend to be somewhere between 5 and 10%, sometimes a little bit lower. And I get the sense that that's that's probably that 10%, maybe 12% is about as high as a lot of central banks want to go in terms of their gold holdings. And sometimes there's a lot of discussions about sanctions driving people to own gold. But uh, some of the more interesting studies we've read recently show that the drivers of gold allocations are primarily your monetary and fiscal policy rather than sanctions related issues. To me, the really interest, one of the really interesting questions here on China is what would it take to see greater diversification by central banks and private sector entities into the renminbi? And I, we have a page here that looks at this. China has a massively high money supply, the highest in the world when compared to their own GDP. Um, if they've fully opened their capital account, and let residents take their money out freely in terms of a fully convertible currency, that could create incentives for other entities around the world and central banks to buy and sell debt denominated in renminbi, and that would create the depth and liquidity like you have with the dollar and the euro markets. The problem is China appears uh, to not really want to have a fully convertible capital account because we have no idea how much renminbi could leave and cause a collapse in Chinese equity and real estate markets. So um, the, a colleague of mine in Singapore, Alex Wolf, did some really interesting analysis. We have some charts in here that show just how different China looks relative to uh, freely floating currencies and also to pegged currencies in terms of how their money supply is massively out of whack relative to the amount of central bank assets and FX reserves. You have to see the charts. Uh, I, I don't think I could do justice to it explaining it, but when you see the charts, you realize that China is a really different entity 
in terms of the massive disconnect between money supply, reserves, and central bank assets. And the only way you can sustain that is having a continuously closed capital account. And if that's the case, I'm not so sure how um, uh, how much diversification into renminbi that, that you're going to see. So yeah, we're going to watch all of these little de-dollarization themes, right? The Saudis um, and the Chinese oil flows that may, some of which may be denominated in renminbi, Indian purchases of Russian oil, some of which are denominated in, in UAE dirhams, gas flows from Russia to China, which are being negotiated and may be in, in euros or, or renminbi, Chinese purchases of iron ore from Brazil, right? So, but the amounts matter. And it's not clear yet that all of these negotiations are going to be really material in the bigger picture. So, yes, there are seeds of de-dollarization happening, but you know this is this is a really good example of something where you want to see the numbers and measure their magnitude before you make any judgments about reserve currency status. Now, that's all of that said. The dollar's reserve currency status may not be under siege, but that doesn't mean the dollar can't fall from here because um, it's it's. Uh, just recently, it was at its highest level in 30 years. And so there's a lot of economic outcomes that could drive the dollar lower, but just don't confuse the macroeconomic cycle issues with reserve currency issues. So last comment, and, and again, reading the piece is a little bit easier. This is, a, this is a macroeconomic topic that lends itself to kind of charts rather than words. Um, I'm not ignoring the long-term fiscal issues that the U.S. faces. I've written about them a lot. And you remember that, um, that chart that I call the chart that everybody hates? We repeat it in this chart. It's the one that shows how non-defense discretionary spending is being crowded out by entitlements. Um, they used to be a one-to-one in terms of the split between the two. And by the end of the decade, we'll be spending, the U.S. will be spending $4 on entitlements for $1 spent on everything else. And, and that's got some negative productivity issues and will also drive up debt to GDP ratios. Um, but I, I figure that the, the US has about 20 years to figure things out before there's a more sustained reserve currency threat from the renminbi because China has a lot of debt issues of its own. If you actually look at the sum of corporate and government debt in China, it's around the same level as it is in the United States. And in China, some of the Corporate sector is increasingly indistinguishable from from the government itself. Um, if over the next twenty years uh, the United States veers off into Greece, Japan territory with respect to the federal debt and doesn't do anything about entitlements, then at that point I think the long predicted decline of the dollar as the reserve currency might finally happen. But uh, a lot of the comments that we're reading right now seem premature, and this week's piece is uh, one way of looking at that. So thanks for listening and uh, see you next time. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. 
Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.